Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Marshall. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report on the ordinance the City of Albany is considering to protect children from tobacco sales. Then, Andrea Conleff reports for the Communities Not Cages, New York, Capital Rally, which calls for prison sentencing reform. Later on, Jacob Boston takes us along to talk with guests at the Interfaith Peace and Justice Holiday events, where he spoke with guests to the event about community love and Santa. And after that, we speak with Danny Killian of Weathered Wood in Troy about creating beautiful objects with collected driftwood. Finally, Taina Asili speaks art, dance, and activism with Edissa Weeks for this week's The Rhythm of Rebellion interview. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that one year after New York's minimum staffing law for hospitals went into effect, Nurses continue to report exceptionally high patient loads as hospital leaders struggle to keep up with turnover rates. Healthcare worker unions have identified thousands of violations at medical facilities across the state and are pushing for stronger contract provisions to hold hospitals accountable. After protests from supporters of Israel over a recent forum by Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace by an Israeli activist, who supports Palestinians. The Bethlehem Public Library has banned the group from holding events there for one year. The stated reason was a violation of the library's prohibition against selling books at the facility. The speaker at the event had sold some books after the event in the parking lot. SUNY Chancellor John King has stated that while some SUNY colleges will have to scale back their programs. He is hopeful that none of the colleges will be forced to close in the near future. Albany County legislator Matthew Peter, aged 38, died on Thursday from heart problems. Peter represented the Center Square and Washington Park neighborhoods and was executive director of the Albany Parking Authority. Albany County has received three proposals for its office complex in the South End. Call for a mixture of those developments. All three offers will all three offer to build more housing while preserving space for the county to use for several departments. The proposals also include a daycare center, a grocery store, and a park. New York's U.S. House Republican delegation, led by U.S. Representative Elise Stefanik, have introduced a resolution condemning the state's new clean state law, which will automatically seal certain criminal records after a certain amount of time. The law is intended to make it easier for ex-offenders to find jobs and obtain public services. And our last headline for 2023. A jury ordered Rudy Giuliani to pay $148 million to two former Georgia elected election workers for baselessly claiming they committed fraud in the 2020 presidential election, delivering a staggering legal and financial blow for the former New York City mayor-turned-Trump attorney. And that's it for headlines. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. The city of Albany is considering an ordinance to help protect children from tobacco sales. To get more information, Mark Dunleave reached out to Jeannie Orr of the Capital District Tobacco-Free Communities. We're talking with Jeannie Orr, who is a program manager at the Capital District Tobacco-Free Communities. And on a recent South End Community Collaborative call, I I heard about a proposed ordinance trying to, um, I guess, restrict against some of the tobacco sales in the city of Albany. So I thought I would ask them to to come on and talk about that. But but first, Jeannie, maybe just explain, what is is the Capital District Tobacco-Free Communities? Sure, I'll explain that. It's... um... We're a local program funded by the New York State Department of Health's Bureau of Tobacco Control Program. And our goal is to help communities create environments that support smokers who wanna quit and that prevent young people from starting. And we do that through various ways and helping to change the environment where we live. And it's our a goal that we um, should all be invested in because tobacco is still the number one preventable cause of death and disease in New York. And I actually, I, I saw the group moving around Quite a long period of time, which somewhat surprised me. How effective do you think the efforts have been to try to reduce um, you know, tobacco use, particularly among young people? Well, I think it's actually been very, very effective. Um, the smoking rate for young people has gone down to 2.1% uh, of cigarettes. But unfortunately, um, e-cigarettes came into the picture, and now um, we have that issue. And so now... Uh, the great progress that we were making in reducing tobacco use overall has now been stalled by that. So now one in five high school students use a tobacco product and mostly it's um, vaping products. Now at this recent uh, South End Community Collaborative, there was a discussion about a proposed uh, ordinance in the city of Albany, um, which I understand you know, your group doesn't you know, per se lobby um, but could you maybe explain what you know? What does that ordinance do, and why is it important? Um, yeah, sure. And I think uh, it's important to understand specifically, um, you know, what the premise is behind the law first, and and that is uh, something I think we all believe. I think most people do, and that's where we live matters to our health. It matters if we have access to healthy, fresh, affordable groceries. It matters if there are safe outdoor areas where our kids can play. And it matters when people live in a neighborhood where it's easier to purchase tobacco than it is to buy a piece of fruit. And so that's what we saw in certain neighborhoods in the city of Albany. There are up to nine times the number of tobacco retailers per capita in the highest poverty zip codes in Albany County compared to lower poverty zip codes. That's nine times. And we also observed that high poverty neighborhoods in the city of Albany have a disproportionate number of tobacco retailers near schools. For instance, there are eight licensed tobacco retailers within 1,500 feet of Albany Free School in the South End, and 11 licensed tobacco retailers near Brighter Choice Elementary School in West Hill. So children living in high poverty neighborhoods have the greatest exposure to tobacco marketing. And and this matters because 
The greater the exposure to tobacco marketing promotion, the more likely youth are to perceive tobacco products as accessible, view tobacco use as normal and desirable, and start using tobacco products themselves. Um, and in the same neighborhoods, adult smokers are less likely to quit and more likely to smoke more cigarettes per day, experience cravings, and make tobacco impulse buys. And I know I'm going on, but it's really important because, you know, at any one time, about 70% of smokers want to quit because they know the impact that tobacco use has on their lives and their health, their families, their bottom line. And in New York, the smoking rate, and we just talked about the smoking rate for youth, for adults is down to an all-time low of 12%. But that is uh, not the case for people making less than 25,000 a year. It's That's at 20%. So what would this particular ordinance uh, seek to, to do? I understand one thing that was trying to um, I guess, restrict uh, sales of, of tobacco products, um, particularly close to schools? Right. So there are several things that this tries to do and really tries to tackle these two issues of the disproportionate um, density of tobacco retailers in lower income areas and in near schools. And also there have been violations of state law that we've observed. And so it, it seeks to bolster enforcement mechanisms so that those laws can actually be enforced the way that they should be. Um, so if you wanna know specifically what the law um, does, there are a few things. Um, it seeks to license tobacco retailers in the city of Albany, and these are the restrictions. They would not allow no new retailers within 500 feet of a school or a public park, uh, and no new retailers within 1,000 feet of one another, and that's to take care of the density issue. And then one year after the law goes into effect, they would issue one license for every two that are revoked or expired um, until they hit a floor about 20 licensed retailers. And um, and the penalties do include suspension, suspension and revocation of license, but for existing retailers, if they're law abiding, they can continue to operate. Um, it would not affect them at all. Now I was uh, reading, uh, I guess, a letter to the editor on op-ed in the uh, Times Union by uh, Colson's, a long established uh, convenience store down on Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't happy, let's put it that way. Uh, I, I was surprised to read that they said about a third of their business actually came from the tobacco uh, sales. But, you know, has there been much pushback, you know, about this ordinance? And I understand the city council has one more meeting in Albany before the year um, ends. Is this thing likely to pass at the city of Albany at this point? Well, it's still in committee, so I don't think it's going to be coming up for a vote yet because they haven't announced a public hearing. But um, in terms of the letter that you read, the commentary, um, there have been some concerns from retailers, but not a lot. We haven't heard much, but um, we've done some research and really law-abiding tobacco retailers have nothing to fear from this proposed law. In fact, these retailers have um, a lot to gain from a system that's designed to eliminate legal tobacco sales and reduce the total number of stores that can legally sell tobacco. So. Tobacco retailers that abide by the law will no longer suffer lost revenues to retailers who violate the law. And with fewer tobacco retailers located in the city overall, individual retailers are likely to experience an increase in sales. And, and so this is another important thing. You know, there is a lot of concern about the bottom line. They're going to lose sales. Um, but 
convenience stores have been responding and adapting to decreasing tobacco sales for decades, and they've been doing it really successfully. According to Convenience Store News, which is the industry's number one source of market research to help convenience stores grow sales and profits, as tobacco sales have decreased over the past 15 years, there has been a concurrent increase in the number of, of convenience stores and an increase in inside store sales revenue. So in addition, the profit margin for cigarettes is really very low compared to other sales categories. Uh, so the bottom line is that tobacco retail stores have been thriving despite the fact that cigarette sales have been steadily decreasing for more than two decades. And, and just to give you a story, um, we, you know, we were out and about talking to tobacco retailers, doing some observation studies, and many of them actually expressed uh, plans to stop selling tobacco because that, they said it was not that profitable. And one store owner we visited had already stopped selling, and she was interested in providing healthier and culturally specific food and groceries to the community instead. And, and she would talk to people when they asked her, oh, do you have some new ports? And she said, no, I don't, but you know, I want to help you. <laughs> and so, you know, there is a lot of that. A lot of retailers want another option. So we have a little over a minute left. So I'll ask you a couple questions and you decide what you can answer in that minute. Okay. Um, but have other, you know, communities adopted, you know, similar legislation? Um, why not do this at the, the state level? And if people want more information, either about this ordinance, about the programs that you run, how best can they get that in the last minute? Mm -hmm. Okay, yes, other municipalities have done this. The uh, city of Syracuse just recently passed this law and uh, the town of Bethlehem, actually a couple years ago, instituted licensing of tobacco retailers. Um, but if you want more information and there's a lot to be had, please come to uh, visit our website, smokefreecapital.org and you can find information there about all this and more. And, um, you know, uh, state, federal, all those agencies, they can also have uh, make rules and, and laws. But um, of course, sometimes the wheels of government run a little slower at the higher levels. So I think that's why local municipalities have, you know, have every right and the responsibility to make our communities healthier places to live. And I think that's what the city of Albany is aiming to do here. And we've been talking with uh, Jeannie Orr um, at the Capital District Tobacco-Free Communities. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For more information on the Capital District Tobacco-Free Communities, their website is smokefreecapital.org. Next up, we have Andrea Cunliffe attended the Community Not Cages rally in Albany, where lawmakers and advocates called for prison sentencing reform. They advocated for the Second Looked Act, the Eliminate Mandatory Minimums Act, and the Earn Time Act as top priority. Here's a recap of the event. On December 15th, a rally was held at the New York State Legislature. As the 2024 legislative session approaches, lawmakers and advocates are naming sentencing reform as a top priority. 100,000 children in the state of New York have an incarcerated parent. 75% of incarcerated women are mothers. I'm sure for everyone in this room that paints a grisly picture of the reality of our carceral system in New York State. This harm is intergenerational. It's not a one-stop shop where only the parent 
receives the effects of incarceration, this trickles down to their loved ones, and presents a myriad of adverse childhood experiences that ultimately raises the odds of a child integrating with the prison system themselves when they're an adult. The system creates neither safety nor justice, it's solely for retribution. Instead, these laws have driven mass incarceration and decimated communities across New York State. But now, today, is the time for change. Now is the time to honor and reunite families. We're calling for the passage of three critical bills, the Second Look Act, the Earn Time Act, and the Eliminate Mandatory Minimums Act. I want to highlight one quick story of thousands for you to illustrate why we need these laws passed now, right now. Because of mandatory minimums, there is someone incarcerated in New York State serving a 16-year-to-life sentence for stealing a package out of a building lobby. This reform is common sense. There is, under no circumstances, anyone should be facing life in prison simply for stealing a package. This, that is why we need the Second Look Act. The Second Look Act will address decades of excessive sentencing and allow judges to review and reconsider sentences. It is why we need to finally eliminate mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimums have decimated black and brown communities across the state of New York. It has led to mass incarceration and has funneled the prison pipeline, crushing our communities. Prosecutors cannot hold all the cards, and judges can consider the individual facts in a case before sentencing them to a mandatory minimum. It is why we need the Earn Time Act, so that our system is not just about warehousing people for as long as we possibly can, but about rehabilitation and restoring people to their families and communities. John Mama, and I'm very proud to be here. For those of you who don't know, I come to you with the perspective of somebody who has committed a horrible crime. I've also been the victim of a horrible crime. So I know what it's like to be both defendant and victim in the courtroom. And I can tell you today that the district attorneys and everybody, they don't really care about either side. They claim that they're representing the people. And yet I can tell you from my point of view as a victim, so I say that because I'm saying, where should we be putting our money? Where should we be investing? Because right now, the way that the system is set up, they want to put people away and they don't care about any type of rehabilitation, whether it's of the defendant or the victim. They're not interested in that. I am, and so is everybody else here. Because we know that we can prevent most of the crimes that are happening. Because you're either anti-crime or you're pro-punishment, because they are a different thing. Pro-punishment believes in mandatory minimum sentences, the death penalty, and even longer sentences for everybody. But those don't actually prevent crimes, because they're not about preventing crimes. They're about the prison industrial complex. They're about making money off of the people that they incarcerate. And it's definitely not about helping out the victims. We don't see that time and time again. So we have to realize investing in the communities, making sure that we have more affordable housing, that we have um, jobs with livable wages. And when we are talking about people who do slip through the cracks and do commit crimes, can we please rehabilitate them? Can we spend the time and money on getting them back on track so when they come home, they are able to reintegrate successfully? We want safer communities and we believe that those who have been incarcerated for far too long can come home and can be rehabilitated and can be successful. And I say that even for the man who attacked me, who tried to end my life, who left me permanently disabled, my hands no longer work, I want him to be rehabilitated. We need to make sure that our legislators know that we the people want the money to be invested in us. Core 
values to be impressed upon the system and upon rehabilitation and making sure that we can have more families reunited today. Thank you. As a state, New York absolutely has to stop investing in retribution. There's no reason that entire economies in counties throughout New York State should be reliant on black and brown bodies filling the prison system. We believe in the human capacity to change wherein those who have been in conflict with the law can turn things around and lead lives of responsibility and contribution. Community, not agents. My name is Matthew Shapiro. I'm the Senior Director of Government Affairs for NAMI New York State, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, it's such an honor to be here today and represent the families that have been impacted by uh, incarceration, uh, something that gets overlooked often in this space is that two-thirds of the incarcerated New Yorkers have either a mental illness, a developmental disability, or a substance use issue. These people need care. They don't need punishment. They need community. They don't need cages. And I want to thank our legislative champions who are fighting here in Albany for true justice and to reform archaic and draconian laws that keep too many of our brothers and sisters locked up. They need a second chance. Too many people, especially in black and brown communities, don't have access to mental health services. They don't have access to addiction services. They don't get the support they need to deal with the racism and the systemic issues that plague these communities and get people diverted towards care and recovery and not towards punishment. It's absolutely crucial that we re-examine these archaic laws that keep too many New Yorkers who need care and support that give them punishment in cages. We really must pass the second act look, the Earned Time Act, and the eliminate mandatory minimums for true justice. As This is common sense issues. It's time to get people the support they need so they can live in the community and they can thrive and not be locked up like animals. So again, it's absolutely imperative that we advance these three legislative measures and get people back into the community, back into care where they belong with their families. Community, not agents. My name is Lukey Forbes, and I'm not just the executive director of We Are Revolutionary, but I'm someone who has lived through and understands the deep flaws of our criminal justice system. I was incarcerated at the age of 15 years old. I have firsthand experience of how our system that often prioritized punishment over rehabilitation, a system that perpetuates a cycle of violence, oppression, and adversity in our community continues to go on. Our organization, We Are Revolutionary, is committed towards addressing these underlying causes of adverse childhood experiences and systematic violence and that plagues our society and our communities. We aim to repair and uplift and equip them with the knowledge necessary to engage in these same processes that really help drive positive change. My desire itself was born from the experiences that I personally went through and not wanting other people to experience that same thing. Right now we're here to talk about a crucial issue at the heart of mass incarceration and some solutions that can really help solve Community Not Cages, a group of bills to help fix three major gaps within our justice system, like mandatory minimum sentences, a policy that strips judges of their discretion 
and drives this appropriation of power to the prosecutors. The Eliminate Mandatory Minimum Act, a legislation that we, we aim to dismantle these unfair sentencing laws, including New York State two and three strike laws. This acts as a step towards righting the wrongs of the Rockefeller drug era. Another transformative piece of legislation is the Second Look Act. This act allows judges to review and reconsider sentences recognizing the potential for people to grow, change as an individual because we believe that it will rehabilitate. Lastly, the Earned Time Act aims to strengthen good time and merit time laws, encouraging personal transformation and returning to family. It's about acknowledging that people can and do change and that our system should support and reward growth. The cost of mass incarceration in New York is not just a financial one, where we spend nearly $70,000 annually per incarcerated individual, um, um, amounting to $3 billion a year. It is a cost that measures in human lives as well. This impact is not just on individuals, but on their families and future generations. The legislation we support eliminating Mandatory Minimum Act, the Second Look Act, and the Earn Time Act are not just bills. They are beacons of hopes, pathways, and more just humane society. We stand here today united in our belief that change is possible and committed to fighting for our future where our justice system uplifts rather than oppresses, rehabilitation rather than punishment. Unites families rather than tear them apart. Thank you. This is Andrea Kunla for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine reporting from the New York State Capitol. Thank you, Andrea, for that. You can find more info at communityalternatives.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazil Hickey. And I'm Marshall Hildreth. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. Located on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and always streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media, located in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. You can also shout it from the rooftops. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. For our third segment, the Interfaith Peace and Justice Holiday Celebration is an annual marker of the year's end at the sanctuary. This year, it returned to its indoor full capacity with a free store, face painting, cookie decorating, group photos, and more. Jacob Boston reports uh, on this event. Okay, I'm Jacob Boston, and I'm here with... Pastor Jerry Ford. And Mr. Ford, Pastor Ford. How has this event been going? What's your, been your favorite part about it and just enjoying time with the community so far? Yeah, man, I love it. Um, I'm so happy that we got this back up and going. It's been going on for a lot of years. And to be back in the building inside around all the fe- people is beautiful. Uh, of course, the food, is, the food is good. And, you know, the, they just started up with some of the music. So, yeah, we're having a great time here right now. And what is your favorite part about 
is with being with the community and just is it the events like this is it just the everyday things what is your favorite part about community in general so one of my favorite parts is about connecting with the community, having an opportunity to meet a young man like yourself. This is our first interaction, and you don't get a chance to do that unless you have activities or events in the community that bring people together. So that's my favorite part, seeing the community come together and all of us be, you know, as one, on one accord. The quality of life goes up exponentially when you get to just be a part of the community, have a lot of people to talk to and learn things from, yeah. and just, just kick it with, just chill with. Definitely. Um, the holiday season is upon us. The snow's already started coming down. The Santas have already came out. Uh, what is your favorite part about this season? How do you celebrate? And you do it with family? Do you are you more of a loner? What? How do you go about this holiday season? All right. So I am a I am a believer in our Lord and Savior Christ the Messiah and so this season is really important because it's, it's about you know him and his birth and, and of that nature so I, I want to stay focused on faith also but then also the love you know I have a family you know watching them get excited about you know receiving but also teaching them that it's tradition to give and then as of recently my family just started to get into Kwanzaa and so uh, the teachings of Dr. Uh, Merengue is amazing and um, just trying to implement those uh, Kwanzaa principles into the community also. Okay, I'm Jacob Boston and I'm here with June Capabianca. And June, you've been at the holiday party. You said this is your first time before we started. What are the impressions you're getting about the community and just how are you enjoying this event so far? Uh, very nice. I'm here with my daughter and my grandson, and she took some beautiful pictures of the baby laying on the bench, so we're looking forward to seeing those. Um, looks like there's a lot of arts and crafts going on, and snacks, and everyone seems to be having a good time. Oh, and some good music, too, up on the stage. Good music, 100%. We were, earlier, it was getting down, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, Christmas is coming up. There's obviously we're doing a Christmas party. Um, what is your favorite part about the holiday season and just spending with your family? Um, really, that is my favorite part of the holiday is spending it with my family and getting together with family and friends. Sometimes that I don't see very often all year, and uh, and I like the lights, lots of colored lights. And we got a big group here, so we'll start with the guy down here. What's your name and how old are you? Zaymani, I'm seven. Okay. What's your name? I'm Xavier and I'm 10. What's your name? I'm Zaria and I'm 5. Oh, 5. How about you? What's your name? My name is Zayoria and I'm 9. What about you? My name is Zayoria and I'm 10. And last one, what about you? My name is Zakari and I'm 8. What is your, what is you guys' favorite part about Christmas? My favorite Christmas will open up the gifts. Oh, that's, yep, one of my favorite parts too. What about you? What's your favorite part about Christmas? The gifts. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's going to be a very, very common answer here. What's your favorite part about Christmas? The gifts. The gifts? Yep. What about you? What's your favorite part of Christmas? Decoration gym gifts. Come on, come on, guys. What about the family? What about the food? My name, my what a family and yeah. gifts. Families and gifts. Family and gifts, family and gifts, bro. Family and gifts. Family, food, and gifts. See, that's that's more of a, a that's a better answer. You know, Christmas is also about 
giving and you know spending time with your family not just getting vrs and iphones and plushies um we're here for the sanctuary's holiday party what's been your favorite part about it so far i know a couple of you got your face painted can you tell me a little bit about that my favorite we part of my face station, we all got the we same all one except for her. Really all got except the same her. Yeah. But he didn't get his face painted. I don't know. Well, for the people who did get your face painted, you're all kind of the same. What is your what is this thing on your face? Oh, a, a dragon. Yeah, a, a dragon dinosaur kind. dragon. Yeah. A dinosaur dragon creature thingy. Okay, sounds sounds very scary. This is not Halloween. It's Christmas. You guys missed the you guys missed the memo. I'm Jacob Boston, and I'm here with Deborah Garrett and Deborah. We're here at the Sanctuary Holiday Party. What are your impressions about this event, and what have you enjoyed about it so far? I'm so glad that I was able to come to this um, event. Um, they used to do this every year, so I'm excited. I love that they brought back me doing the pictures, the family pictures. So that was excited because I got to bring my new little baby. Oh yeah, the little one got another Christmas, another Christmas gift to get. Uh, <laughs> The holiday season is upon us. Like I've been telling everyone, the snow has been falling. It's been getting cold. Santa's getting the deer ready. Uh, what is your favorite part about the holiday season and everything it comes with? Um, I'm not a fan of the snow. <laughs> but, 100%. <laughs> but I am excited for my children. Um, you know, decorate the tree, waking up Christmas morning. Um, you know, the kids love it. But the, for me, I love the fact that we get to celebrate um, God. So that's, that's important to me. It is a, a unique experience being like a mother during the holiday season, especially during Christmas. What is that like and what are the joys of being in that position? Um, just watching them open up their gifts in the morning. You know, that's fun. My kids is definitely in the phase of like transitioning to, is Santa real? Is he not real? But it's just the, the excitement of the holidays. I'm telling right now, Santa is real. I believe Absolutely. it to this day. Absolutely. He's real. He's listening right now. <laughs> yes, he is. Um... Obviously, we have the whole community together. It's a pretty good event, you know, everyone coming together, chilling, kicking it, music, um, hot chocolate, some music, um, food. What is your favorite part about being a part of a big community like this? Um, For me, I love the fact that everybody comes out, Um, you know, whether you see each other every day or, you know, once a year. At least, you know, if you come to this event, we're going to see people that you may not have seen over the... um, as the weather is changing, because you know people are really not outside. As far as like if they was in the summer, in the summertime, everybody's out. And you get to see people. So this event brings the whole community together. So. Okay, I'm Jacob. I'm here with Carmela Mantello, the council president and incoming mayor. Thank you for coming. First of all, um, what is your impressions about this event, and what have you liked about it so far, and just the community in general? Absolutely. I'm born and raised in Troy, Jacob. Uh, never left, and I love Troy. It's in my DNA. Um, I actually was born in North Central, a couple blocks uh, south of here. And this is the heart and soul, our neighborhoods, our community. Uh, we got to take them back, and, you know, we have to keep our kids off the street. We got to keep our kids safe. And this tonight... Uh, the tree lighting, that's what this is all about. It's about community, unity, love, and working together for one tree. And you said a lot about community. What is your favorite part about being part of a community and the things that that comes with? You got it. You know, Jacob, uh, I think our greatest asset here in Troy are the people. Um, our people are the greatest. We have the most diverse, incredible 
community-oriented people, you know, you have Jerry Ford, you have Mac Henderson, Kevin Pryor, all these people who are really working so hard to bring back our neighborhood. So what I'm going to do as mayor, I'm going to harness their energy, I'm going to harness their leadership, we're going to work together and we're going to show that Troy's the greatest city in this state. I 100% agree. Um, I've been in Troy, I wasn't born here, I was born in Brooklyn, but I've been at Troy for maybe 15, 16 years and nice. so many just, it's home, it feels like home. Um, and that's what Troy's about, you know. Uh, even if you've lived here one year and you've lived here like me, 50-something years, um, Troy is about unity, it's about love, but most importantly, if we don't work together, um, we're not going to take back our streets and bring back our neighborhoods. So it's all about working together, strength in numbers, and the whole is greater than the sum of its part. And, you know, the holidays is approaching. Like yes. I've been telling you, when the snow is falling, the, the weather is dropping. <laughs> what is your favorite part about the holiday season and just being able to spend it with the community and with family? Yeah, you know, there's nothing like a snow day. Um, you know, when I was a kid, um, and you, I bet, I bet you love snow days, and you could drink hot cocoa, go uh, sleigh riding over at Fruit Park, uh, help your parents out maybe, uh, doing a little shoveling. But, you know, I always feel the holidays, it just brings people together, and it brings out people's good side. If we can just keep that love going that we feel through the holidays all year long, it's going to go so far. And so what happened here tonight, we need to continue that momentum. So not just do it around the holidays, but all year round. Last question. You are the incoming mayor. Can we get a statewide essay ban around the around the state? I'm begging, please. Can we get a statewide essay ban? What's your thoughts on that? An essay ban? Yes. You don't want to write essays anymore. Okay. Um, I'll have to talk to the superintendents about that. But, you know, remember, essays are good. They get you thinking. They get you motivated. And uh, I bet you're a really good student. So I'll look into that, though, Jacob. That's right, yeah. Tell, tell them Jacob sent you. Thank you for doing the interview. Appreciate it. All right, Jacob's first request to the mayor is to get out of homework. <laughs> Thanks, Jacob, for that coverage. We also had some recordings from around the peace circle, uh, from around the tree and the candle lighting. You can hear all that at our website. Time for our fourth segment, where you're uh, talking about collecting materials from the Hudson and Mohawk Rivers with Danny Killian, uh, who creates lamps, tables, chupas, and more. Uh, we are now joined by Danny. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. So just to kind of get us started off, could you uh, please introduce your business, Weathered Wood, to our listeners? Sure. Um, wow. Weathered Wood is hard to sum up in just a few words. Um like you did say in the beginning, we do gather um, materials from various different sources. One is along the Hudson and the Mohawk River, um, different pieces of driftwood. And like you had mentioned, we make uh, hoopas for weddings. Um, we make little uh, driftwood lamps, which have been popular for 10 years now, which is kind of crazy to think about. We also... Um, 
in the early days were approached by some of the local tech companies to build uh, some large like conference tables type stuff, like reclaimed wood conference tables. And we weren't even doing anything like that, but we started trying to get into that. So now 10 years later, again, we've built tons of just really insane conference tables and like really unique dining room tables from all reclaimed lumber that was sometimes pulled out of dumpsters, but now more so I get invited to job sites where construction's going on, you know, these, these old factory buildings along river street, we're getting these giant beams out of there. And, you know, these old brownstones that are sometimes they used to be single family homes. And now like, in recent history, they're getting cut up and made into apartments. And a lot of times it'll be original structure stuff, you know, from like the mid to late 1800s that will turn into desks and dining room tables and stuff like that, shelving units. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell, I suppose. Oh, amazing. I know having been to your store in the center of the, of Troy, downtown Troy, it feels like it's it's your workspace. Like you can see the working benches. You're around your uh, tables and and installations. Could you take us through the process of material collection to workshop to the hands of your customers? Yeah, I mean it's it's a labor of love for sure. It's an arduous process because sometimes when we are called to a site to get materials and I say we all the time just like I don't know it's a habit I picked up a long time ago a lot of times it's just me I do have a couple guys that like will do some freelance stuff part-time for me but it's mostly me we'll get called to a job site and it's there's either materials in the dumpsters the big you know uh, long dumpsters that you see along the road sometimes I'll have to climb in there and dig it out and put it aside and it's all full of nails and and dusty and dirty and I'll load a bunch of the stuff that I have come to recognize as, you know, viable for projects into my van and I'll bring it back to the workshop and unload it. Sometimes I'll work right on the street where I'll unload it off the back of the van and like Put, put up some sawhorses right outside in front of the store and try and like do a preliminary denailing so that it stacks better. And then I'll, you know, hump it all into the building. Sometimes I'll leave it right on the floor by the basement stairs because the workshop's in the basement, which is <laughs> something that hopefully doesn't go on forever. <laughs> I have, I have uh, future plans to, to move it to um, a structure right next to my house that I live in. Hopefully once the city gives me the all clear. Um, and then we'll get it down into the workshop, we'll store it. And then if we have the time, we'll just, you know, build something that we know from years of experience, people like dining the tables and stuff. And then, or we'll just wait, you know, sometimes, especially during the farmer's market, I'll, um, book a lot of custom orders so people come in and we'll talk about what shape and size they want. Um, we'll put it all down on paper, the dimensions, and then we build it. We do a, like an initial showing. So like this is what it is off of paper and in real time. What do you think? Are you digging it? Are you not digging it? And then uh, if they love it, which, you know, most of the time they do, luckily for me, <laughs> And uh, we finish it up and then we bring it to their house and drop it off. 
That's awesome. That's, and you said this has uh, been kind of like an evolving process over uh, 10 yeah. years or so when you first started this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I probably started a little longer. We had a smaller space than we are now where Sina has been um, for a short lease. And then we were doing stuff through other people's stores going back a mm. long time. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been evolving over probably 12, 13 years. Yeah, so over that like pretty long stretch of time, uh, has it kind of changed the way uh, you interact or view uh, the places you get your materials from? Like I'm thinking like the river or even if maybe you pass like a, a construction site on your way home, you're like, yeah. oh, wait, <laughs> what's there? Yeah. So if you could dive into that. Uh, well, the river is pretty consistent. You know, just earlier this week, I went back to one of my favorite haunts and it was just like so abundant. Like we didn't even have time to grab all, try and schedule early next week a, a chance to go back out to that same spot because the river is pretty consistent um, with the things that it, that it brings along to us, especially along the uh, lock system of the Mohawk River. Um you know, with the lumber, that is a good question because once a whole area has been remodeled, like everything that's going to get remodeled has been remodeled, it's gone. Um, so it is like a, a limited resource. And I do like dabble in other areas um, just in case I get to a point where I don't have, I've collected a lot of materials over the years, but it's a limited resource, you know, and once once everything's done being remodeled, you know, there won't be more, but I think that it, there's a good chance that it'll go on for a lot more years because Troy especially is getting so popular. Um, a we funny have, story that... Um, we only have about ahead. two minutes left, so I do want to ask another yeah. question before you finish. Sure. First, I want to just, uh, for our listeners, what can you go over some of the things you have to offer in your store? Um, I know you mentioned lamps, right, and tables. Yeah. Uh, and then also, like, what would you like how would you like your customers' relationships to change through the use of these reclaimed materials? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I guess just if people have interesting ideas of things that they can't find anywhere else, so, so that they get really aware of the fact that they can come here and like we can co-design something very unique to their own needs or something very original to themselves. If that can continue to be like the evolution of the company, that would really thrill me for sure. Um, well, thank you so much, Danny Killian, for joining us. Um, what is yeah. the website where we can learn more information? Oh, um, the website would be Weatheredwood Troy. Um, and then I post a ton of stuff on my Instagram, which is also Weatherwood Troy on Instagram. And uh, like you said, I'm located in the heart of downtown, just past the music hall, the Troy Music Hall, um, at 13 Second Street. And there's still, across the street from you, still your installation outside for outdoor dining, right? Which makes it very visually... Right? No, those go oh, that's down gone? for the end of the year. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay. okay. So there'll be some cool events coming up in March. There's the Capital District Garden and Flower Show, which I do an enormous installation. Like, think of that outdoor seating area times 10. You know, Amazing. It's huge. So, yeah. So well, that's we'll have to have you back on. Yeah, I'd love to. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to speak with us. 
for sure, yes, man. Thanks thank for you having so much, me. Danny. Yeah, have a good one. You too. Thanks so much. You bye too. bye. Thanks. Yep. Bye. All righty. So to continue uh, on today's episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion, Taina Asili delves into a captivating conversation with Edessa Weeks, a renowned choreographer, educator, and the founder of the multicultural dance company Delirious Dances. Welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Taina Asili, and today we have the immense pleasure of diving into the world of art, dance, and activism with a truly remarkable guest. Hailing from the vibrant cultural tapestry of Brooklyn, New York, Edissa Weeks is a choreographer, educator, and the visionary director of Delirious Dances. Her work is a mesmerizing blend of theater and dance, creating intimate environments that have been celebrated for their striking visual effects and thought-provoking narratives. Hi, Edissa. Welcome to The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here, Taina. It's such a amazing community that you have created through this podcast series. Thank you. So I wanted to know more about that personal journey, how your unique upbringing spanning Uganda, Papua New Guinea, and Brooklyn, how that has influenced your artistic vision and your approach to dance and storytelling. Oh, there's so much to cover because <laughs> yeah. each of those um, countries and, and different continents are so rich. Um, so my mother is from Uganda, East Africa, and my father is white American, going back to Scotland. And my first memories are in Uganda. Mm. But one of the things that I realize I treasure and has greatly influenced me as an artist is the importance of food. Mm-hmm. And I feel in a lot of my work, uh, food is integrated because I find food can be such a, an amazing way of bringing people together because we all need to eat. Yes. You know? yes. And you don't want people to go hungry. Mm-hmm. And t- to be a good host, you feed people. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if like, all I have is one slice of orange, we're going to like cut up that orange so everybody can have like a piece of it. You know? The influence that my father had in my life is that he wasn't a very emotional person. However, he was wonderful in really exposing myself and my siblings to so much art. And so he'd often take us on our these journeys. And one of the things that was amazing being in Papua New Guinea, and especially in the Highlands, was Sing Sings. Mm. And there are these big performative events that often would happen across villages and across communities where, again, food was a big part of it, but singing and dance was also a part of it. So instead of fighting each other (laughs) and killing each other, how can we find peace through music and through exchange? And I will never forget seeing the mud men come out Mm. of the bushes and, you know, they were covered in like this white mud and then they had these huge masks that covered their faces and they moved very silently and mysteriously and it made me realize the importance of ritual in connecting people. Okay. I want to ask you more about this idea of gift giving and ritual. Can you elaborate more on the creative process for that? A lot of it is invested in research. 
And so my work often has this very deep, deep investigation into history. I mean, I love books. I love reading. I love the information. I love documentaries. And so it all becomes source material. I almost think of it as an iceberg, that the audience might just see the little tip, but what informs that tip is this yes. amazing depth of information. So it allows for a lot of uh, understanding from both myself and the performers of knowing, okay, where are we coming from and why? Like, we're not just creating it to because we want to be fabulous or create something fabulous, but we're creating it to also impart an idea. And that idea is rooted in uh, a history and a culture. I know that you have a new series of shows that you've been working on called Three Rights. And I wanted to see if you could talk to us about the inspiration behind this work and mm. what you aim to convey through its intricate storytelling and dance elements. Rewrite started because I became fascinated with why life, liberty, and happiness were included in the Declaration as inalienable rights that we are all guaranteed. And, you know, I grew up going, I have life, liberty, and happiness, but then going, ooh, actually, how do you guarantee life? How do you guarantee happiness? And who did they guarantee it for in the 1700s when this document was written? And how do you guarantee it now? Especially when I think of DACA and Black Lives Matter and that we've been continuously at war in the Middle East, you know, just, um, mm -hmm. you know, how do we uphold these rights for everyone and not just in theory? Yeah. Right. So I wanted to do a deep dive into life, liberty and happiness. And so life looks at how we can be better stewards of the world and specifically focusing on our dependence on fossil fuels mm. and then plastic that is made from fossil fuels because mm -hmm. feeling that that is killing us, whether it's through war yes, or through microplastics. Yes. And also environmental warming. How is it connected to that? Mm -hmm. And so as part of the life right it's a huge installation of plastic waste. <laughs> I've been collecting plastic waste for like four wow. years. Wow. Initially, I was collecting it uh, from my neighbors because I was like, oh, I can get a lot of like plastic on <laughs> you know, recycling days. But then I was finding way too much about my neighbors. <laughs> so I was like, I have to stop that. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Because I really wanted the dancers and the audience to be wading through plastic, you know, because wow. I feel often, yeah, we just throw it out, someone takes it away, yes. and we don't think about where it's going. Yes. And we don't think of the people who have to then sort through it. Mm -hmm. And the really horrifying fact that only, I think it's like about 8% of plastic is actually recycled. Right. You know, the majority of it ends up in landfills and ends up in other countries. And again, all the health problems that are connected to it. Absolutely. And there are alternatives. There, We can be making plastic out of mushroom roots or mm -hmm. out of seaweed and algae. I mean, there are tons of alternatives, but we need to have the power and the mindset to advocate for that change. Right. So that right is really about having a radical revolution of values. How do we change yes. what we value? Yes. And as part of that, it's having um, discussions in what we're calling the green room. And so one of the discussions we had was about the Buen Vivir movement. Mm. which actually started in Ecuador, mm. which is about changing how a country defines its success. 
So instead of it being based on the gross domestic product, which is connected to corporations, right. can it instead be based on how many of your citizens are living above the poverty line, have yes. access to healthcare, to housing, to yes. education, to yes. food? Like if your people are happy, that should be what determines mm-hmm. uh, a nation's success. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just life. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! We just that's just one of three. That's just one of three. One three. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this is a journey. Ooh, I love it. It is. It is. Um, Liberty is looking at the pathologizing of African Americans by psychiatry and the foundations of liberty in America. So as part of that right, I've been in the process of making one thousand eight hundred and sixty-five roots out of paper and twine. And the thought is that the audience walks through these roots on their way to meet the Liberty character. And the roots are anywhere from like eight to 30 feet long. And for me, you're going into the underbelly of American history uh, by walking through these roots. The happiness ride is about joy. It's really about tapping into self-care. It was really fascinating for me to realize that initially it was supposed to be life, liberty, and property, and property got turned into happiness. And part of it was that back in 1700s, the only people who could vote were people who owned property, and they weren't really interested in everybody voting. It was also that enslaved people were property, and so if you're guaranteeing people to property, were you guaranteeing that they could keep enslaved people in perpetuity? So there are several reasons why it was changed to happiness. Um, Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the main writers, was a big fan of enlightenment. And so the whole idea of happiness as being an aspiration for people. But with a lot of the research I was doing, it was finding out that the pursuit of happiness actually stresses people out. That what makes the average person happy, I mean, there's always exceptions, but what makes the average person happy is having a meal, sitting down and sharing a meal with people. You know, doing what we're doing right now, just uh, talking and shooting the breeze. Uh, Volunteering is a big one Mm -hmm. where you see that you can make a difference in a situation or another person's life. So I really wanted to create a right that was about tapping into joy as a form of empowerment and resistance against oppression and joy as a way of developing the resiliency so that we have the strength to uphold life, liberty, and happiness for all. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. Many thanks to Moses Nagel for bringing Taina Asili's The Rhythm of Rebellion to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And over the holiday break, we will have an hour special focusing on The Rhythm of Rebellion. And that is our show. This is our last live recording before we take a two-week break for from pre uh, as before we take a two-week break where we'll have them pre-recorded programming over the break. We have some really amazing content coming, so keep listening and you'll hear us back live in 2024. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Marshall, and we want to thank all our volunteers as well. Uh, that would be Mark Dunley, Andrea Cunliffe, Jacob Boston, Tayana Asili, and Moses Nagel. Uh, also, a huge shout out to any of our uh, hosts, producers, engineers, uh, and guests we've had this year. It's been an awesome season of Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm excited to see what we have in store for 2024. Bye.